0: Welcome to Made With, BisD student's guide to staff. My name is Fiona Dolan. Today, we are going to be talking about light with guest speaker Ingrid Newman from Rhode Island School of Design Museum. As you may well know, light is an electromagnetic radiation that can be perceived by the human eye. Visible light is usually defined as having wavelengths as a range of 400 to 700 nanometers, corresponding to frequencies 750 to 420 terahertz between the infrared and ultraviolet, but we are going to be discussing the scientific properties of light as much as the use of it in art. Light is often something we take for granted, it's not really material, nor is it tangible beside the side effect of heat. It is simply a phenomenon of the universe. This makes it a difficult but essential part of our experience of art, and it has been since the beginning of the human race. Back in Paleolithic times, the Magdalenians, an early race of humans located in Upper Europe, such as Portugal to Germany and nearby islands, archaeologists found examples of what they theorized to be moving paintings depending on the way light shifted in a cave. These works of art were often be on plaquettes, small movable palettes, rather than wall paintings, often depicting animals such as bison, ibex, horses, and deer. A few have birds, parallel lines, or undetermined subjects. What is interesting about these depictions is they would often have multiple legs or positions within a single image. These plaquettes would have been placed in close proximity to hearth structures and low-light levels, perhaps as a means of emphasizing the relationship between light source and the drawings, with dynamic light cast on the hearth bringing the depictions to life. What was discovered is that when light is moved across the image, it gives the illusion of movement, much like a drawn animation, showing the sophistication of these early communities. These early forms of art demonstrate how essential light was in the process of depicting life. Another popular art technique that formed its way around light is shadow puppeteering. Shadow puppets are an ancient form of performance art and entertainment which uses flat, cut-out figures which are held between a source of light and translucent screen. The shadow theatres occur all over the world, including India, Indonesia, Southeast Asia, Egypt, Turkey, and Europe, and relations among various traditions, but the practice is considered to have originated in China. These performances often told tall tales with spirits, heroes, and emperors not relating historical accuracy, but presenting a suspense of belief. Many scholars relate the art form back to Plato's allegory of the cave. Scholar Fan Pen Chen writes in Shadow Theaters of the World, quote, Puppets of humans and animals are apparently manipulated behind an audience in a cave. The fire behind the puppets casts shadows of them, which are observed as the only form of reality by the feathered audience, as an allegory for the illusionary nature of all perceptions." End quote: The use of light as a form of storytelling shows how the material can persuade and alter perception. The shadow theater uses luminance in a practical way, but also shows how through the use of light, we can create new worlds and life. These ideas continue throughout history, like the Camera obscura that uses light much like a projector, to trace scenes. This was famously theorized to be used by Vermeer. Light also played a big role in the Renaissance. It was used as a way to dramatize and bring focus to a scene. Light was truly utilized as a tool when the camera was invented. It was Nisiphor Nieps that received credit for the first photograph using heliograph. Helio meaning sun and graphia meaning to write. He would quite literally expose a light sensitive material, such as asphalt, to a well-lighted scene for a limited amount of time to create an image. He used the sun literally to write. This later became the building blocks for understanding photography and eventually film. These references to light are somewhat ironic due to the severe light damage that can take on art. UV light, the harsh sporadic wavelength of light, can be quite damaging to most materials used in art. Paper, yellow and red pigments, and inks are the most at risk. Artist Mark Rothko knew this very well as his paintings were one of many works that became damaged due to light exposure Mark Rothko was a painter born in 1903 Latvia and passed away in 1970 in New York City he is one of the most celebrated artists of his generation pioneering abstract expressionism his paintings are known for emphasizing the most formal elements of painting color shape composition and scale Rothko layers colors that create striped planes. The adjacent colors vibrate and radiate light. His work is also linked to tragedy, ecstasy, and the sublime. Rothko's abstract paintings directly represent the fundamental nature of human drama. These effects were very heavily reliant on the specific colors he meticulously chose. Rothko's paintings are internationally beloved and admired. So much so that Rothko donated a series of paintings to the prestigious Harvard University. The series was placed in a brightly lit, Holyoke Center penthouse. The works were intended only for ceremonial functions, but were routinely left out. Overexposure to the sun caused irreversible damage to the paintings. The vivid, crimson-toned paintings have faded and distorted into an unrecognizable blue. This type of damage cannot be restored. The murals were shown to be victims of multiple wounds, such as rips in the canvas and stains from food and graffiti. This shows the university's neglectfulness to these precious paintings. Once the damages were discovered, the works were retired to storage. The present state of the paintings distantly resembles the original Rothko works. Their grandeur and dramatic atmosphere were completely altered by the fainted paint. Harvard Art Museum teamed up with Massachusetts Institute of Technology and the University of Basel to digitally restore the color transparencies of the work. Michael Kilman from New York Times explains, quote, "They use projection mapping on the canvases to bring the original hues back to life. The team developed custom software and camera projector systems that read the painting's current colors and compare the information to the original photographs and calculates the compensation image." This is sent to the projector." End quote. The, this practice encouraged collaboration between art historians, conservators, and scientists that allowed the series to be viewed by new audiences. The series of paintings known as the Harvard Mural Triptych were only exposed to the projector for a few hours a day to limit the amount of light exposure. Ingrid Newman discussed the controversial event.
1: Harvard, several years ago when they had those Rothko murals, mm. that was a really interesting, um, scientific um, not risk but like going out on a limb a little bit where instead of in pain the, the Rothko mirrors had been so damaged by light because they were in the faculty lounge at the Holyoke Center at Harvard University for so long that when they reunited the four panels that had been on view with the one panel that had stayed in storage because it didn't fit in the, in the faculty lounge they realized how much light damage had been done And so they used a projector to actually replace the pigment because uh, Mark Rothko used lithol red, and that's notorious for, as a red pigment, Mm -hmm. for fading. So in that case, light was actually our friend, right? It it helped us to recreate the artist's intent. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not a permanent change. You have to put the projection on and then
0: doesn't hurt the painting? Right, more?
1: That, that's a very, it's always a very good question, but it was left on for only a certain period of time and then it was shut off. Um, I don't know that it's a permanent, you couldn't sort of leave it on permanently, but it was an exhibit.
0: Do you think if they just rotated the paintings within the cafe, it would have been better? Or what have they done to present, prevented this fading?
1: Well, the Holyoke Center is on the top... Um, I mean, the, the faculty lounge is on the top, center, the top uh, level of the, the faculty um, Holyoke Center area in Harvard Square. And I've been up there, and the, they have a huge bank of windows, you know, and they, they probably could... I bet they didn't shut the curtains like on the weekends or maybe when it wasn't open to the faculty, right? If they just left the curtains open during, say, lunchtime and then shut the curtains... I bet that would have prevented a lot of the damage.
0: It's so a very like basic, easy thing they can do yeah. to just like prevent yeah. the severity of light but damage.
1: They probably didn't do that. Yeah. At that time, this was like in the '60s, '70s, '80s. Mm-hmm. You know.
0: This tragic mishandling of art shows us the fragility of 20th century work. Even some of the most valuable and recent works can be damaged or faded relatively quickly. It also shows the duality of light. While it can irreversibly damage and fade, it can also repair and revive what's lost. More and more, we see museums using digital restoration. The Isabel Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston, Mass, has been displaying high-resolution replicas of the art that was showing signs of light damage and deterioration. This controversial decision allows for the harm's work to be protected, while museum-goers still get to experience the work. I would now like to sit down with Ingrid Newman, a conservator from the Rhode Island School of Design Museum in Providence and discuss light and its functions and vices from a conservator's perspective. What do you find most prevalent agent of deterioration in the museum and what is your first line of defense?
1: Well, I would have to say um, light is or an agent of deterioration that we're most concerned about because it does irreversible damage. Mm -hmm. So many other agents of deterioration like pests and humidity and temperature also do damage in the museum context, but a lot of it we can repair or hide or conceal. But light damage is something we really can't reverse. It's something that we call also cumulative um, and it's cumulative because it's based on um, the numbers of, like, an artwork, you know, the numbers of hours an artwork is exposed to light, the quality of light, meaning is it daylight, LED, incandescent, fluorescent, you know, whatever, that, and how many hours, you know, duration. So duration, quantity of light, and, you know, intensity of light, and um, and that creates light damage, what we call light damage. And we actually... We actually monitor light damage hours in the museum. And it's not just the light, I just want to point out, it's the ultraviolet in the light, something you can't see. You can see light, you can see the intensity of the light, but you cannot see UV. And UV is the wavelength that's very rapid, so it's the most damaging. And we know that from our skin, that you know we're trying always to protect our skin from UV, right? Because we get wrinkles and yeah. other things. Skin. They keep track of the light damage hours because, in theory, museums like to rotate their art. They don't want to keep um, artworks out in perpetuity if they can help it because um, light damage, again, is uh, gradual, but it's cumulative and it's irreversible. So, like, for instance, on the back of a Rembrandt um, etching or something like that, a paper conservator might keep track of the light hours that the etching was exposed to like during an exhibit. At the Ristey Museum we have um, an, an individual that's dedicated to checking the light levels in every gallery and on every work of art especially if the work of art comes from another museum. If it's on loan we have to be very careful not to exceed their specifications, or we can get kind of in trouble with the other institution and they're not going to want to loan us art anymore. But in our, so we do that, but um, in our own collection, uh, Michael Owen here at the museum, he's actually a RISD grad and a painter. He's in charge of uh, monitoring the light. So, um, you know, uh, works of art on paper, photographs, textiles. um, Often only, we like them only to receive five to seven foot candles. And that's uh, equivalent to 50 to 70 lux. That's the same measurement. So foot candles is an American measurement, <laughs> and lux is the rest of the world uses lux, okay. kind of like inches and you know.
0: Okay, so if you had like a magic wand and you could have like any technology and you do anything to the museum, have all the money you like needed, what would you do to improve like how light damage is like concealed in the museum or prevented?
1: well you know it's sort of a, a little bit of a joke like we just like to conservators love the dark we just like to have everyone go through the museum with a flashlight or something yeah. <laughs> you know um but that's not what museums are about i think oh i think if the RISD museum had all the money in the world i think every room should be dark until someone walks into it and then the lights should go on i think that would be perfect that costs a lot of money you know, some days honestly, some days are less popular than other days, and sometimes we don't have that many visitors, especially in the winter, during a snowstorm or something like that. And why we have the museum, the light you know, all the lights are on. We would save a lot of money and maybe with that money we could afford to get the motion detected light, you know yeah. systems. That would be I think that would be a great museum and, and so everything would be lit to full capacity if someone was in the gallery. Right. So, you know, um, a lot of um, museums will have motion-detected um, light sensors, for instance. Right, we have that up in the um, Japanese print gallery on the fifth floor. We have that one room where it's always dark unless someone walks into it and then the lights go on oh, okay. and that was specific the reason why it's specifically that way in that one specific gallery is because it's a Japanese print gallery so Japanese prints are notorious for having very sensitive um dyes and natural plant dyes and things that would fade over um the months for instance um in general, with Japanese prints. The rule is that you expose, you can expose them for say for three months, and then they need to rest for three years.
0: Oh, we, you know, they were very like careful. Completely hidden. Yeah,
1: and stored in a church and other places. I know one technique, like historical societies and places that can't afford LEDs, mm-hmm. they'll often um, turn out every other bulb, or they'll wrap the bulb with tape so that less light is coming out of the light bulb. Okay. And there's ways to or use a lower wattage you know there's ways to lessen the light yeah Yeah, there there's a lot of tricks that we use in the museum and people use in historical societies and like house museums where because you the visitor comes in often from a very well-lit outdoor environment and they come into the museum and especially older people they have trouble seeing because their corneas are all yellow and you know they younger people not so much but there's some different tricks where you can, um, like the first room in the museum that they're gonna enter is you know, um, bright, and then the next one maybe is a little bit less bright, and eventually they, their eyes adjust um, to a lower light level. Um, in general, I mean, the museums are in the business of trying to preserve the art for a long, long time. So the less light you expose the art to, the longer it's gonna last. Mm-hmm. Do that archaeological artwork for instance is pretty robust generally and can be lit with a lot of light it's inorganic right it's often clay or stone or glass for instance but contemporary art okay now you're talking about plastics and found objects and a lot of materials that are very new to the market that we don't even know how they're going to disintegrate necessarily and the problem with for conservators to learn about contemporary art, if the artist doesn't know the brand names of the materials they've used, and then the conservator is trying to figure out what the artist used, because um, maybe they're either deceased or they're not available for you know to, you know to conversation. Um, there's a lot of proprietary mater- proprietary art materials out there that you can't get the um, composition of, so we can't really predict how they're going to deteriorate so we have a lot of question marks we do a lot of testing that's why we do testing because if the companies aren't going to tell us like what the paint is made out of or the glazing material or the putty or the glue or whatever we have to analyze it and then we figure it out ourselves and we can predict you know how long it's going to last and stuff
0: so i'm a painter and is there any like pigments in like oil paint or watercolors that are like particularly like don't want
1: to go near. They're going to be like completely changed by light damage over the years. Sure, I mean, gen in general, um, yellow pigments and red pigments are very light sensitive, and it's not just yellow and red because like green is made out of blue and yellow, right? So you know you're going to find that your greens sometimes turn blue because the yellows preferentially fade, and red ones like Van Gogh, he used geranium lake that's you know notorious for for fading. So. Um, you know those pigments they're they're faded from the top surface I should say but you could with a microscope you can often see you know they you know you can or you can take a sample and you can right so I would say reds and yellows the earth earth tones are very stable earth tones very Mm -hmm. stable Um, but some of I would say the reds and the yellows
0: What room in the house is the best place to hang a painting? Because I'm not so I the kitchen like, would be bad. Yes, because then
1: you've got the grease and cooking oils, you've got coffee, um, greasy bean you know, residue. Yeah. I like hallways. Really? I think hallways are great. Now, hallways tend to be a little on the dark side. I wouldn't put any artwork near um, you know, a radiator. Um, I wouldn't put it directly across from a window. Of any kind. You know, I'd put it off to the side. Um, if you have air conditioning in your home, for instance, uh, you don't want to have it anywhere near a vent where it's getting blasted with, like, either cold or hot air. Mm-hmm. Um, you really want the art to be able to equilibrate to the changes in seasons slowly. Yeah, That's why artwork often in churches and, and uh, crypts and places that you think would be dark or i mean are not um conducive to good art preservation are kind of nice because churches and buildings that are made with big thick stone walls and things they they go through the changes of seasons very gradually so they're not shocked you just don't want to shock your artwork
0: yeah so that would be helpful for paintings, though, right? Especially on like wood panels, though, because then they adjust to the season very
1: slowly. You want yeah. that's the name of the game. Your artwork will last much longer if it can just slowly <laughs> move through the season instead of being blasted with the air conditioning or the heat and stuff like yeah. that. Yeah. So,
0: is there anything that like artists can do while they're creating art to make it more conservatively friendly for you in the future?
1: <laughs> well, I I think. Um, You know, I'm not in the position of, you know, dictating what people should use or not use, but I would love, in an ideal world for me, my perfect conservation world would be if I could go to an artist's website and they would have their conservation philosophy on their website, meaning, like, is it the you know, the concept of their work that they want preserved. Do they want their work to be preserved at all? You know, if so, to what extent do they want it preserved? They just want it stabilized? Or do they want it restored to the artist's original intent? Mm-hmm. You know, what to what level degree are they looking for? Because I don't know, I don't have a crystal ball and all artists are completely different. And in my career, what I've learned from artists is that their ideas change they go from being young artists and they're usually more experimental and they're not concerned about um, what happens when they're no longer on this earth and, and their artwork represents them. But I found like with Mimi Smith, she's a perfect example in New York City that um, as she got older, she got a little bit more concerned about what her legacy was gonna be that she left behind.
0: Thank you so much um, for sitting down and talking with me. So what is the importance of taking light into consideration during cultural studies? It's just like a quick end, quick
1: from you. Well, I think, I think we have to find a happy medium. You know, like we can't have museums that are dark and we can't, um, uh, we can keep storage dark, which, you know, aids in the lengthening of the artwork that we can exhibit. Um, but I think it's a happy medium. I think we need to take into account times of year and the intensity of light, you know, um, at different times of year. Um, Also the orientation of a a museum and its galleries at facing the south light, which tends to be very strong. Or, you know, um, so thinking more about your, the orientation of where your art is placed and certain kinds of art can be exposed. For instance, you could put anything made of stone and glass and ceramics in a very lit room. And then you put your more sensitive materials further back, you know, away from the windows, you know, in hallways, (laughs) things like that. So just thinking maybe more conscientiously about placement. Mm
0: -hmm. Light allows for beautiful art forms to grow and thrive throughout history and around the world. It is one of the fundamental building blocks of life, making it a universally used material. This obvious truth made it so very easy to be overlooked as an agent of deterioration. It wasn't until after World War II when a lot of art was discovered underground without damage that it was decided to be integrated in as a modern practice of conservation. It just boils down to being conscious and aware of the materials and tools we use. We want artwork to last. The cave paintings, puppet shows, and many other art forms that rely on light sources are a valuable part of our world's history. So, I hope as a collective we can be more aware of the importance of knowing and understanding light than materials we use. Please wear sunscreen, and I hope you have a great day.